great to be back with you, and I do want to thank Pastor George and Pastor Elizabeth for stepping into this pulpit and continuing our series on Without a King as we go through the book of Judges, and glad to be back, and I'm going to finish this complete series out over the next three, four weeks, and over that time, as we've gone through the book of Judges, we have seen what happens when we redirect our allegiance to anyone or to anything other than Jesus himself. And we have seen that even partial allegiance really is no allegiance at all. And without Jesus as our king, we will default to doing what we think is right in our own eyes. And how many know that never goes well? We've seen the cycle in the book of Judges with the Israelites repeat over and over and over again. It's a downward cycle and it's gonna continue this weekend. That cycle looks like this. I drew this on the opening weekend. It begins by Israel doing evil in the sight of the Lord, shifting their allegiance from King Jehovah, from King Jesus. And then all of a sudden that leads to them being oppressed by their enemies. And then of course, in that oppression, they repent and they cry out to God and say, we need you, God. And as gracious as God is, he comes in and he raises up a judge in the book of Judges that will, God will use to deliver them. And then there's a season of peace and then they do evil on the side of the Lord. And over and over and over it goes and spiraling downward. And right here as we hit this middle section of Judges, it goes south in a hurry. And so it's important to remember though, as we look at this cycle and we think about it, this isn't a cycle that happens outside of God's people. These are God's people. Okay, these aren't unbelievers. This isn't enemy nations. These are God's people that are going through that cycle. So today, let's not fall into the trap and thinking what happened to God's people in the judges can't, won't, or isn't happening to us today. So if we know the devastation in turning from our allegiance to King Jesus, if we know the result of that and the causes, then why do we continue to do it? Why did Israel continue to do that? And how is it so easy for God's people to shift their loyalty to anyone or of anything other than King Jesus? I believe the answers are found in the final half of the chapter of Judges 8 and Gideon's story, and it also found in chapter 9 where we hear about his son Abimelech. Let's pray together. Father, your word is truth. And we declare that today. And so that's why we open our Bibles. We look at scripture, recognizing that it is only through your word that we find out how to live. We find out who you are and the place that you have for us in your story. So today we seek your truth. We seek to hear from you and to respond appropriately. I've been chosen as the vessel today to bring forward that message, an imperfect vessel. So I pray you would purify my heart, my lips, And Lord, let us only hear from you. And then let us respond in faith to make significant changes. Spirit, transform us so that we wouldn't just have lip service in pledging our allegiance to you, but we would live it out. In your name, everyone said? Amen. Amen. So you may remember the story of Gideon, or if you were here last week, or even at Homestead as Pastor Sheldon preached on it and Pastor George preached on it. I want to remind you of where we were in Gideon because they only really covered the first half of chapter 8. So Israel, it begins, did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the top of that cycle. And once again, they turned from their allegiance to Yahweh. 
And because of that, the Lord handed them over to their enemy. Now, does anybody remember at that point the name of their enemy? The Midianites, awesome, he paid attention last week. So the idiot, Midianites, Idianites is what I almost said. That would have been a cool name for them, the Idianites. The Midianites was their enemy. And you may remember the Bible says they came in, they stole their cattle, they plundered their land, and the Israelites got to the point where they were starving. And of course, they repent and they cry out to God and God raises up a man to deliver them, one of the judges whose name was Gideon. Now don't forget, when God called Gideon, Gideon questioned God and said, are you sure I'm the right person? And he actually says, because I came, I come from the weakest tribe, the weakest family in all of Israel. But God says, no, Gideon, I've called you. And then the Bible says that the spirit of the Lord clothed him with power. So Gideon responds by tearing down all of his family's idols, and then God prepares them for battle. Now, as they face the battle against the Midianites, remember, Israel and Gideon had 32,000 soldiers. That's how big their team was, 32,000. The Midianites' team was 135,000. Now, if you're lining up to play a game or go to war, how many know you would rather have 135,000 than 32,000? But God says, nah, you've got too many, Israel. You got too many, Gideon. And he dwindles it down to 300. So now you have 300 in Israel's army versus 135,000 in the Midianites. But as we heard last weekend and as we know, God delivers and Israel doesn't even have to lift a sword and they win the victory. So the question then is, why would God make Gideon and the Israelites go to battle with only 300 against 135,000? Easy answer. The answer is, so there would be no doubt who won the victory. Did Gideon and Israel win the victory? No, it was God who gave them the victory. So if that was the end of Gideon's legacy, If that was the end of the story or the end of the series, of this series, everything would be great. But unfortunately, it's not the end of the story. The cycle continues after this amazing lopsided victory. We're going to see what I believe is now the greatest threat to Israel's allegiance to Yahweh and our greatest threat as we seek to be allegiant to Jesus. So let's turn to our text for today. I'm going to ask you to go to Judges chapter 8 verses 22 through 27. If you have your Bible, you can open it. If not, of course, they'll put it on the screen and the monitor. So this is what the word of the Lord is for today, starting at verse 22. The Bible says, then the Israelites said to Gideon. Now, remember, this is right after the victory, okay? Right after God delivers them and gives them the victory. The Israelites said to Gideon, be our ruler, You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers for you have rescued us from Midian. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. However, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from your fallen enemies. The enemies being the Ishmaelites, all wore gold earrings. Gladly, they replied, they spread out a cloak And each one threw in a gold earring he had gathered from the plunder. The weight of the gold earrings was 43 pounds, not including the royal ornaments 
and pendants, the purple clothing worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains around the necks of their camels. Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold, and he put it in Ophrah, his hometown. But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it, and it became a trap for Gideon and his family. Now, as you've read that or follow, follow along, you may be thinking, okay, so what's the big deal? On the surface, it appears as though Gideon did all of the right things. The victory is over. The Israelites come to their judge at that time, Gideon, and say, we want you and your son and your grandson, your family to rule over us. And Gideon rightly says, no, the Lord will rule over you. All he asks for is a little plunder from the victory. So how could Gideon turning down kingship and making something that was sacred to God, how could doing those two things lead the Israelites astray? And as the Bible says, even becoming a trap for Gideon and his family. Well, later today, I want you to go back and I want you to read through chapter seven and eight, read through that entire story of Gideon again. Read through the battle and how God delivered them. There is something significantly missing in those chapters and in those verses. There's something significantly missing in this story. And if you read it and pay careful attention, you may discover what it is. It's this. At no point in the story of the victory that God gave Gideon and the Israelites over the Midianites, do they ever stop and acknowledge that it was God who gave them the victory. There is no praise found in those chapters. There is no thanksgiving. There is no song of worship. There is no glory given to God. Nowhere after the victory does Gideon or Israel pause to give acknowledgement, thanks, worship, honor, glory to God. Now, how many times have we seen Israel give worship and glory to God after a victory? If you're not familiar with their story or the Old Testament, as you read through, they have done it lots of times. They know that is the appropriate response. Two chapters earlier, Pastor Elizabeth preached about this on Mother's Day weekend when she talked about Deborah the judge. After God raised up Deborah and the Israelites won the victory, there is an entire chapter given to the song that Deborah wrote in worship and honor and glory to God. But here, after this incredible victory, there is silence from Gideon and the Israelites. There's not one acknowledgement that it was God who brought them success. Now, our pastor emeritus, Pastor Rock, is here in this service today, I know. I won't mention where he's sitting. But during, during my interview process two and a half years ago, I remember asking some of the congregational leadership, what is your favorite message that Pastor Rock preached? Does anybody want to guess what it was? Right song on the wrong side. Pastor Rock, I mean, you crushed it on that one. I mean, one sermon out of 36 years is pretty awesome that people, I'm teasing him, I'm teasing him. Right song, wrong side. How does that relate to our story today? There was no song on either side. There was none. There was no worship, no acknowledgement at all. Here after the battle is Israel immediately wants to make Gideon king, wrongly thinking that he was the one, that he was the reason for their success. And Gideon, as their leader, as their appointed leader, has the perfect opportunity to set their eyes on the right king. 
but he doesn't do it. Instead, in the very next line, we see what's happening deep in the heart of Gideon. Let's look at it again. Right after the battle, we read this. The Bible says that then the Israelites said to Gideon, be our ruler. You and your son, grandson will be our rulers for you have rescued us from Midian. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. Right here, he's saying all the right things. He's doing all the right things. He has the opportunity to set Israel straight. But this is what he says instead. However, I do have one request. I'm not sure going to be your king. No, the Lord's going to rule over you. But since you're asking me for something, I'm going to ask something of you. That each of you would give me an earring from the plunder you collected from your fallen enemies. And the Israelites say, sure, gladly we'll do that. They replied and they spread out a cloak. And this says a lot about the Midianites and the enemies. This is, I, I think this is pretty funny. Each of them threw a gold earring that they had gathered from the plunder. Now, the weight of the gold earrings was 43 pounds. Imagine that. 43 pounds just of gold earrings from their destroyed enemy. But not only does Gideon get that and ask for that, he gets royal ornaments, pendants, the Bible says, purple clothing worn by the kings of Midian, Midian, and I love this, chains around the necks of their camels. Now, you got to be a pretty bad army to put bling on your candles. <laughs> Which, by the way, I quickly discovered having an 18-year-old son, they don't call it bling anymore, it's called drip. <laughs> so their camels had drip. And that's what Gideon asked for. And they give it to him. But look what the Bible says after this. Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold and he put it in Ophrah, his hometown. But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it, that sacred ephod that he made. And it became a trap for Gideon and his family. So what's the deal with the sacred ephod? First of all, what's an ephod? An ephod was a spiritual garment. It was a priestly garment that the priests wore and only... The, the tribe of Levi could be priest. Let me remind you, Gideon did not come from the tribe of Levi. Gideon never would have or should have worn an ephod. That was for the tribe of Levi, for priests. And the ephod was something that they discerned what God was saying. But as you read through the Old Testament, as Israel's story continue, you will see that what once was sacred, the ephod, all of a sudden becomes an idol. And that is what is happening here in this story. Gideon, he turns down kingship, but then he asks to be rewarded for the victory. Gideon takes 43 pounds of gold, melts it down, and basically makes an idol out of it. And he puts it in his hometown. Now, 43 pounds of gold, if you put it in today's market, I looked this up, would be $1.25 million dollars. So Gideon makes a $1.25 million gold ephod and he puts it in his hometown as a subtle way to remind everybody who won the victory. It wasn't Gideon who won the victory. It was God. And this is where we as Christ followers can easily get off track. This is where our allegiance to King Jesus is tested. And if we're not careful, this is where unloyalty can begin. So here's the moral and the point of the story and the thing that all of us so significantly must remember. It's this. The greatest threat to our allegiance to Jesus is success. 
the greatest threat to our loyalty to God and his kingdom is in our victories. The greatest threat is not found in our defeats, but rather our victories. In defeat, at least we are humbled and forced to look up to God and depend on him. You see, success often leads us to look in the mirror, but defeat often leads us to look at God. It is in our success where we are threatened to be unloyal to God. Think of this example. Most of us know someone. We have someone in our life or we work with somebody. We know a man or a woman who works extremely hard at their job in a need to prove to to themselves um, through their financial success, through their career achievement or status success, that that is where they find their identity. You know what I mean? Like their success, how much money they make, how high they climb the corporate ladder, all of those things feed their identity. So thinking of someone like that, what is the worst thing that could possibly happen to that type of person? Well, the obvious answer would be career failure. However, I would say that at least in failure, that person may stop idolizing money or career achievement or status. He or she may realize that it's not money, it's not status, it's not climbing the corporate ladder that will fulfill them. Those things never will fulfill them. I would say the worst thing that could happen to an individual like that is for them to actually succeed because it is in that success that they will only confirm and fill and lead them to believing that they can control their own life. That more often than not, it is in that success that they will become a slave to money and a slave to status and a slave to career achievement. So with us, the greatest threat to our allegiance to Jesus is success. Significant dangers come to us as Jesus followers during times of success and victory because it can breed pride. Just like Israelite, the Israelites and Gideon so easily and maybe even innocently neglected to acknowledge God as the reason for their success, so can we. When we have success and victories in our life, we can easily overinflate our own selves. And when we do this, we take away glory from God. And anytime we rob God of his glory, things do not go well at all. The apostle James speaks about what happens when we take honor and glory from God, even innocently. The apostle James in the fourth chapter of his book asked this question to you and I, do you think scriptures have no meaning? Well, we would say, no, of course we understand scripture has meaning. So then James says this, they, speaking of scripture, the Bible, the Bible says that God is passionate That the spirit he has placed within us, if you're a Christ follower, his spirit lives in us. So James is saying that spirit placed within us should be faithful, or as we've talked about, should be loyal and allegiant to him. God desires our spirit to be faithful, loyal, and allegiant to God alone. And the Bible says God is passionate about that, that we be loyal. But he says he gives grace generally, generously. Thank God it's not generally, it's generously. (laughs) But as the scriptures say, James says, God opposes the proud, but his grace that he talked about is to the humble. 
So his grace goes to those who follow him that have a humble spirit. But God opposes the proud. Now, I highlighted this word in green, opposes, because sometimes we think, we, we think that word opposes mean, well, you're just on the other side of it, or God doesn't like the proud, or you know, he's not for those who are proud. No, that's not what the word opposes means in the Greek. If you study that word in the Greek, the oppose, it means God resists the proud. There's even a picture that is brought up that God will battle against those who are proud. What James is saying is that if you have God's spirit in you, God is so passionate about your spirit, about you, about us as Christ followers, being loyal to his kingdom, that if we are prideful, God will actually work and resist against us. That's how serious it is that we do not have pride in our life or take glory away from God. The minute we begin to take credit for any success, we're now opposing God and he will resist us. You see, Gideon said the right thing, but his actions demonstrated something different. Gideon said, I will not be your king nor my family. The Lord will rule over you but all of his actions indicated something different. What does a king do the minute he wins a battle? He takes the plunder from the enemy. Are you catching what's happening here? So Gideon said all the right things. No, 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 no. I am not gonna be your king. The Lord will rule over you. However, I would like some plunder. And he builds a $1.25 million that which was supposed to be sacred, that which he never was supposed to build because he's not from the tribe of Levi. The Bible goes on to continue. If you read the rest of chapter eight, he takes on multiple wives and has 70 children. That is something that we see kings do throughout the Old Testament. Not only that, if you continue, and this sets up chapter nine, he goes to a town of Shechem and he has a concubine. So no, I'm not gonna be your king, but give me your plunder. I'm gonna take lots of wives. I'm gonna have 70 children. I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have a concubine in Shechem and have an illegitimate son there. How many you know he's acting like a king even though his words are saying something different? How often do we do the same thing? And it was success that breeded that. The Bible says at the end of chapter eight, as soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal making Baal their God. They forgot the Lord their God who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them. They forgot because there was no credit giving in their success or acknowledgement that it was God, it wasn't Gideon. The dark and violent story that we see in Judges 9 of Gideon's son Abimelech is what happens, it's what it looks like when God opposes the proud. Judges chapter nine is one of the darkest chapters in all of the Bible. And it is the fruit of Gideon and the Israelites' pride of not giving God glory. In chapter nine, Abimelech, one of Gideon's son, goes to Shechem and say, don't you want me to be king? Not my brothers. And in one of the darkest stories and scenes, Gideon, Abimelech takes 70 brothers, his, takes all of his brothers, 70 brothers, and on a stone that was probably similar to this, he kills every one of them. And now all of a sudden we're gonna see the dark side, this cycle, this spiral that's going to go deep and dark, all began because after success, they never gave glory and honor to God. The greatest threat to our allegiance to Jesus is success. 
So as we close today, what are we to do? Pastor Allen, are you saying that success is bad? Should we pursue failure? No, no, of course not. The answer is not accepting failure. The answer is to be extremely self-aware and cautious in our successful seasons. James actually gives us the answer. Right after he said, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, he gives us the answer. And he says this, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It is the devil, the father of lies, that in the victory, after that will speak and be on your shoulder and whispering in your ear going, you did pretty good in that. And it's a lie from the enemy. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. James says, come close to God and God will come close to you. He says, clean your hands, purify your hearts because your loyalty, your allegiance is divided between God and the world. It's in moments of victory. It's in seasons of success that more than ever, we need to draw close to God. You see, many of us, we do that when we're in the valley. We do that when things aren't going well. We cry out to God. We read scripture more. We are more faithful to our quiet times. We worship with more energy and we come to church more and all of that because we're in this season of drought and we're in the storm. But I would challenge you that it's in the season of success. That's when more than ever, we need to lean and draw close into God because it's in those successes that seeds of unloyalty can be planted. And that's what threatens our allegiance to Jesus. Would you stand to your feet today? Pastor Christian's gonna come and I asked him to, we're gonna have a time of reflection. And I asked him to lead us in a song and I don't believe we have space today to do what we did at the 8.30 service. So I'm gonna change this up a bit. At the 8.30 service, I asked everybody who was physically able to kneel right where they were. And I know we, this many people in the room, it's gonna be hard to do. But I want us to physically posture ourselves today. So even if we could just bow our heads and put our hands like this. I don't know where you are at today. I don't know what season. Some of you, you're probably like, man, I haven't felt like I've had success or a victory in years. But other of you, you have, or you're in that, and all is well. I just ask that individually we would come before him and we would submit ourselves and say, God, search my heart, test my thoughts, even innocently. I don't want to rob you of any glory. I humbly come before you and submit to you as king. Just between you and God in these next few moments as Christian sings, will you pray and search your heart? Let's give him glory. For your glory I will do anything just to see you to behold you as my king for your glory i will do anything 
just to see you, to behold you as my King, for your glory, I will do anything just to see you. To behold you as my King, for your glory, I will do anything just to see you. To behold you as my King, for your glory. I want to lead us today in just a prayer of repentance. But before I do and we close and dismiss, I ask you personally to think about that. And I hope that you did that, that you repented in your heart. God, we don't want to take anything individually glory from you. But there's a bigger picture here. Pastor Blaine has said this, and I agree that this is a sweet season in ACAC feels like the Holy Spirit is at our backs and breathing. There's a lot of excitement and hubs being built and there's energy. I'm imploring with you. We cannot take any glory for God, from God. I don't want God opposing us and that starts with me. There is nothing special in me or elders or board or staff or us as a church. There is nothing special about us as a people other than the grace of God. And I don't want to be working against God. So I ask you to keep a humble heart. And even in the larger body of Christ, I need to be careful, but Sometimes I wonder in the big C, the global church, especially in the American church, I have to wonder, we want to have 135,000 soldiers to go up against the Midianites. And it could be that God is dwindling us down because he doesn't want us to rely and think that we got it and we can figure it out and this battle is ours. This battle is not ours. It's God's. God just wants us to be loyal and allegiant to him and not to prostitute ourselves to money, to individualism, to government, to anything else. The answer is in Jesus. So let's keep a humble heart. Father, we pray. Lord, we repent individually. We repent corporately as a congregation. And in being a small part as the big C church, your global church, we repent. Forgive us for robbing you of your glory. Forgive us for not acknowledging you and giving you thanksgiving and praise. Forgive us for thinking that it's in what we do or working and maneuvering and being strategic to accomplish your purposes. God, forgive us thinking that it's anything other than you. Receive all the glory. Receive all of the honor. We humbly ask in your mighty name, amen. So go today, be loyal and allegiant to the kingdom of God and serve him well. Amen. We'll see you next weekend.